So a recent stat I've heard is something like 80% of our insect species are in decline. Most, most of what we're seeing is population decline of insects, including pollinators like bees. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and in part one of this two-part series, we are going to dive into the world of honeybees. Tune in as we look into their crucial role in the food supply chain, their profound impact on our ecosystem, and how their tireless work supports the very foundation of our sustenance. Explore the challenges that these unsung heroes of the environment encounter and the sustainable practices that hold the key to ensuring their survival. This episode is set to be a hive of insights and will push you to think differently about bees. If you're like me, the memories you have of bees revolve around swatting or running away. Bees are a lot of times seen as a danger because of their sting, but people fail to realize the importance of bees for our ecosystem and agriculture. Bees are so much more than meets the eye. Beyond the occasional sting and their role in producing honey, they hold a vital key to our food supply and the health of our ecosystems. These small insects play an outsized role in pollinating a significant portion of the world's food crops. From the juicy strawberries to the crunchy almonds, the vibrant apples to the luscious blueberries, bees are the unsung heroes responsible for ensuring the growth of these diverse and nutritious foods. Their work directly influences the size, quality, and taste of these crops, contributing to a robust global agricultural industry. But beyond the realm of agriculture, bees play a critical role in maintaining the balance of our ecosystems. As they fly from flower to flower, they transfer pollen, facilitating the reproduction of plants and enabling them to produce fruits and seeds. This process not only sustains the growth of various plant species, but also provides food and habitats for countless other organisms. Biodiversity, a crucial element in the health of ecosystems, owes a great debt to bees. Their pollination services contribute to the survival of numerous plant species, which in turn support an array of insects, birds, and mammals. In this intricate web of life, bees act as linchpins, connecting different elements of the ecosystem and ensuring its vitality. So maybe next time you come across a bee, don't be too quick to run away. Instead, maybe consider tipping your cap to these small yet mighty creatures. On today's episode, we're diving into a story of passion discovered in an unexpected place, Copenhagen. Our guest, Brooke Vikowski, found inspiration across the world in the unlikeliest of events. Enrolled at Georgia Tech with a major in computer science, Brooke's life took an unforeseen turn during her study abroad in Copenhagen when she encountered the world of honeybees. Yes, you heard that right, a computer science enthusiast falling head over heels for bees. When she returned to Georgia, she traded algorithms for beehives, diving into volunteer work at Georgia Tech. But that's not all. 
Her journey eventually led her to establish her own beekeeping venture, Southeast Beescapes. This transformation, a common thread among sustainability professionals, is fueled by a single pivotal moment. For Brooke, it all hinged on a trip to Copenhagen, an unassuming journey that changed the direction of her life. Today, Brooke works at Georgia Tech as the Senior Facilities Manager for the Candida Building, which is one of the only living buildings in the U.S. Stay tuned for part two of this series as we talk about living buildings and specifically the Candida Building. So, Brooke, thank you so much for joining us on the Green Hour today. I'm so excited to talk about honeybees. I've been honestly talking to a lot of a lot of people in my life this week about how excited I am um, to talk about this topic because uh, honeybees are one topic that I know nothing about. I'm excited to get going. So thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about bees and buildings and sustainability in general. Yeah. So we'll start off, Brooke, and, and how I usually do these episodes is asking the guests to talk about their background. So you know, we have an understanding of what you're doing today, but we want to know how you got there and how your early life really dictated um, your success and, and where you are now. So could you start off by talking about your early life? If you want to go back to childhood, you can, or you can start in college, wherever you want to take this, but just talk about growing up and how it you know, led to your success. Sure. Um, so I was raised just north of Baltimore, Maryland, um, kind of in a more rural area. And I think that access to nature as a young girl definitely influenced my passion for it later in life. So I think it is actually important to go back to childhood. I will make it brief, though. Um, <laughs> but pretty much growing up, my parents realized my interests pretty early on were not necessarily typical. I didn't like sports or kind of your typical kind of summer camp opportunities. So they put me in things like nature camp or science camp. Or I was an avid horseback rider all the way up through college, um, starting at a young age. So I very much enjoyed being outside of nature, but also had that kind of tech brain as well. Like one of my favorite uh, childhood memories is bringing in my parents' alarm clock into science camp and taking it apart and trying to put it back together. So I think my parents knew early on um, that you know I was I had this kind of dichotomy in my head where I really loved being outside, but I loved the technical world as well. And I think that. Um, really defined, you know, how I continued in life. Um, so yeah, I don't want to spoil too much, but <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're good. So, so growing up in a rural area, I, I grew up in North Georgia, so very rural. Um, mm -hmm. I went to school in Eastern Kentucky in an old coal mining town. So mm -hmm. I know, I know living and growing up in rural areas and what that can do to your mindset. Yeah. Um, but Brooke, I want to get into next. Obviously, I mean, you went to Georgia Tech. You you spent your all of your collegiate career there. So, could you talk about you know what brought you to Georgia Tech? You know, what did you study? How did that whole experience at Georgia Tech really mold you into um, who you are today? Sure. So um, definitely, I was kind of leading into it, talking about taking things apart and putting them back together, and just having that kind of engineering mindset. Um, I wanted to go to school for some sort of either engineering or I was really looking at computer science because I took AP computer science in high school um, and I actually went to an all girls Catholic private high school and they offered AP computer science every other year. And the year that I took it, I was one of three girls. So it was a very small program, um, but I'm so happy that that you know teacher wanted to put it on, even though there wasn't a lot of interest for it, because that really shaped um, my interest in technology or kind of continued my interest in technology. And um, 
from that, you know, looking at schools to go to for college, um, I really wanted to be in the South because I liked being warm. I did not like the cold winters of Baltimore. Um, and Georgia Tech just seemed like a good fit. I mean, you know, as long as I could get into the school, it was kind of a dream school for me. Um, and so I applied to their computer science program. I got in in t- uh, 2011 and um, spent four, four and a half. I did do half of a victory lap, um, <laughs> spent four and a half years at Georgia Tech. And um, and I, I really loved my time at Georgia Tech. It was very challenging, but I also realized kind of halfway through my time there that um, I wasn't really going to enjoy a job in that field. Um, I had an internship. Um, it was like the ideal internship. I was in DC, Washington, DC for a summer and it was like a mid-sized startup. So there was like job security, but it was also fun. And they had a ping pong table in the break room and everyone there was really like cool and fun. And, um, and I was miserable the entire summer. I was just sitting behind a desk, you know, trying to apply my programming knowledge to, you know, it was mostly web development. And I was just miserable the whole time. And I was thinking, I don't know if I can do a life like this. I need to be outside. I need to be working with people. I need to, I need to be connecting with people. And um, so I continued with my degree because I thought that that would be the best backup plan in the world was a degree in computer science from Georgia Tech. So, um, but my joke at the time was I'm going to save the world. And so if my, if my passion in saving the world didn't, pay the bills. I could always be a programmer and kind of sell it my soul. Um, not that everyone in programming feels that way. That's just how it worked out for me. Um, but so far, at least trying to save the world is going okay. I'm able to feed myself and pay rent, but also I feel really um, empowered and passionate about my job every day. And this has been throughout, you know, right out of college, my job right out of college, as well as subsequent um, kind of career changes. I really feel I'm more in the in a realm in the realm of sustainability now, and um, I really like that I can be truly passionate about what I do while also making enough money to sustain myself. So I want to go back to one point that you made um, back in mm-hmm. high school. You talked about there's an AP um, computer science program every I think you said every three years, um, and you said there's only three girls um, in that class when you took it. So um, I don't know I don't know the answer to this question, and I'm, I'm genuinely I'm curious. That's why I'm asking. But is computer science is that a, is that male dominated? Is that a yes. male dominated field? Okay, Very much so. um, high highly like a high percentage. Yeah, there were classes at Georgia Tech, kind of some of my higher level um, computer science classes. I'd be in a lecture hall with maybe two hundred people. There'd be like eight women, and we'd all oh. be sitting together. <laughs> what? Nice. Yeah. yeah, very much male dominated. Um, it's changing. I feel like the ratio is changing. Um, just in general in higher education and also in engineering fields, STEM fields, STEAM fields, um, definitely is changing a lot. And I think Georgia Tech's doing a lot to, to push for that. But um, yeah, very male dom. I've yeah. always been in male dominated fields. Like yeah. every single job I've ever had is like uh, very male dominated. So I'm used to rubbing elbows with boys and I can't right. talk sports, but I can, <laughs> I can talk buildings and HVAC systems and whatnot. So, (laughs) yeah, it's funny. Well, I wanted to ask that because on, I guess it was today, Friday on, on Wednesday, Mm -hmm. I spoke to Grace Stanky, who is Miss America um, 2023 and she's in nuclear engineering. She's studying that Mm -hmm. at the university of Wisconsin. And she, I think, I think the number that she said was it's 13% of the industry is women. 
So wow. she's trying to break that mold. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's just really cool to see um, just women in, in, in these male dominated fields, just having success. So yeah. um, I know you're not still in computer science, you're in, in more of sustainability, but still, it's really, really interesting. So looking back at, at your college career, what, what I read, um, and I, I did a little research, um, read into some um, Georgia Tech publications, and I saw that um, you did a study abroad in Copenhagen. And that whole experience of, of traveling the world just uh, kind of introduced a new passion for you. Um, and I like to say that, you know, if you don't if you don't know what you want to do, let's just pack a bag and let's go somewhere and you can figure it out. And, and travel travel can do that to a lot of people. And it did that for you. So can you talk on um, that experience in Copenhagen and, and what what passion was introduced to you? Absolutely. So um, that was a very formative time uh, studying abroad. I actually did two study abroad programs while I was at Georgia Tech. And I highly, highly recommend uh, every Georgia Tech student to do that, especially if you're an out-of-state student, because you pay in-state tuition when you study abroad. So they incentivize it very heavily. I'm very happy they did that because it opened up a lot of opportunities for me. But my second um, abroad program was actually an exchange program. So Georgia Tech sent students to Copenhagen and um, the University of Copenhagen sent students to Georgia Tech. Hmm. And actually, if I'm being really honest, it, can I be vulnerable here? Yes. Um, <laughs> if I'm being honest, um, my time at Copenhagen, I was dealing with um, a pretty heavy bout of depression. I was really having a hard time, especially with the weather. We got there in January and there was, I think, four or five hours of sunlight a day. Oh, wow. And it was cold and it was snowy and it was raining and it was miserable. And I was having a really hard time kind of getting my getting on solid ground there. Um, and a lot of the classes were programming based, computer science based. They were very interesting. I'm glad I took those classes there. But um, I was having a hard time until I started volunteering at a community garden in Copenhagen because I just knew I had to be outside. Um, I really appreciate Copenhagen as a biking culture because um, it, it forced me to exercise and kind of get out um, into the outdoors, into the elements. Um, but I started volunteering at a at an urban farm. And, you know, we started out in the winter. So a lot of it was planning. So I would come to these little roundtable events where they'd have a big drawing on the board of what they want their farm to look like. And they had, you know, blueberry bushes over here and fruit trees over here and, you know, seasonal vegetables here. And at some point at one of those meetings, someone talked about getting honeybees. And I thought, that's weird. Why would you get honeybees? That don't, don't they sting you? Aren't they evil? Aren't they these, these little demonic creatures? Um, but they educated pretty quick, you know, educated me pretty quickly as to how honeybees pollinate uh, their crops, uh, also can help the ecosystem and the native flowers around them, but can also um, provide honey that they can then sell at their farmer's market to then kind of put that money back into their, their programming. And I thought, huh, that's pretty cool. Um, unfortunately I had to leave before it was warm enough to actually install those honeybees, but it planted that. I know, yeah. <laughs> so, I, but it kind of planted that seed and that interest, um, and that curiosity. So, uh, when I went back to, you know, back to Atlanta, um, my roommate at the time, I was talking to him all about honeybees and how cool it is that they do this and that. And he was like, oh, don't you know that Georgia Tech has a has a honeybee research program? And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Let me go check that out. So I, I went to one of their meetings and started, um, you know, putting on the bee suit and getting out there and taking care of the bees. And um, 
it became an addiction. Truly. I was skipping class to go see the bees. I was um, volunteering as much as I could. I was helping them sell honey at the Georgia tech farmers market every week. I was just completely engrossed in the honeybee culture and everything. And then from there, the, I think the director of the Georgia tech, or, uh, I'm sorry, the director of the Georgia tech urban honeybee project, Jennifer Levy, um, I think she saw me kind of hanging around quite a bit and thought, well, maybe we should just pay you to be here because you're, <laughs> you're here so often. So she hired me as a student assistant. Um, and so I did that for maybe a year or two before I graduated. Um, and then when I was going to graduate, she asked me if I would stay in Atlanta for a summer research program that she was doing with honeybees. And so I agreed to do that. And so I was helping facilitate honeybee research and doing some um, programming where we took these uh, summer students out to other urban or not other urban farms, but out to urban farms around Atlanta. And we would volunteer in those urban farms. We would take care of their bees and just kind of get exposed to different urban farms in the Atlanta area. So I was helping um, facilitate that. And then by the end of that program, um, the director sat me down. She was like, okay. I can tell you're really interested in honeybees. I know you have this degree in computer science and I want you to go, you know, do what you want with that. But she said, I have this idea for a honeybee uh, business if you're interested. And um, so one day we met at a Starbucks and she's showing me her business model that she had created this business plan that she had created for this honeybee business. And she told me that she would help me, um, you know, get some of my first clients. She would help, you know, direct people to me. In October, October 28th, 2016, I started Southeast Beescapes, which is my honeybee installation and maintenance um, business that I've done for the past five years. Yeah, it's been, and it's been really good. Um, It's been, there's been a lot of interest, honestly, too much interest for me to really handle, but that was kind of my entrance into honeybees and beekeeping and all that, that whole, whole culture. Yeah, it's it's crazy because when I talk to people, everyone always has a quote unquote sustainability story. Like when did when did your mind change on the environment? Mm-hmm. What what made you so interested? For me, it was one conversation of, of someone I heard talking and right away I was like, wow, I need to do something for you. You're in Copenhagen and, um, you know, the, the weather's the weather's not great. It's all it's pretty much all darkness all day. And that's hard. I mean, that's that's tough. I, I know my sister, she went to the University of Kentucky. Um, her freshman year. And she would talk about, you know, it's, it's so hard to be happy because it's raining all the time. It's cloudy mm-hmm. all the time. It's cold. Um, so, so I can definitely understand that. And, but yeah, everyone, everyone has their sustainability story. And it's so interesting that yours started in Copenhagen and you took that passion of, of what you, of what you saw there and took it all the way back to Atlanta with you. And every step along the way, you ended up starting this company around beekeeping. And it just it's just mind boggling. So I guess what I would ask you is, you know, we we hear your story about how you got into beekeeping. But for a lot of people, you know, they know of of honeybees of like you said, like, oh, I'm running away when a bee comes. I don't want to get stung. It hurts. I'm I'm swatting at them. Um, And we know we know bees produce honey. But a lot of people might not know much more about what bees do. And really what their role is in food supply and in the ecosystem as a whole. So could you touch on um, just the overall importance of honeybees for our ecosystem? Sure. So um, honeybees are very unique and very um, interesting creatures, which is why I just like them so much. 
Um, but their main role really is in pollination. A lot of people think about honeybees, they think about honey. Well, honeybees are the only bees to create honey. So that's good that we think about them in that way. Um, but really their main, the main source of income, at least for most beekeepers is in pollination. And so what happens is as, um, you know, our, in our current agricultural system, we have what's called monocultures, which means we have miles and miles and miles of one type of fruit or vegetable. So for example, in California, we have almond groves that just go on for miles and miles and miles. The demand for almonds recently for almond milk, almond butter, mixed nuts, um, things like that. The demand has been so high that they have to plant so many almond trees that uh, only bloom for a couple weeks in a year. Our native bee populations cannot support that amount of trees and trees that only bloom for a short period of time because those bees need to eat year round. Um, so what we can do with our honeybees, since we keep honeybees in boxes that we can transport, we load up these beehives on these transfer trucks and ship them all across the nation. So we'll take them to California and we'll do um, our almond, you know, the almond trees are in bloom. So let's get our bees to California. Oh, but now the blueberries are in bloom in the Atlantic. So let's ship them back to the Atlantic. Oh, the orange trees are in bloom in Florida. I got to get them down there. The apples are in bloom in, in New England. Let's go there. And so they ship these, they ship thousands of, of beehives, um, each farmer. So you can have millions of beehives in, in California when the almond groves are, uh, almond trees are blooming. We cannot do that with any other type of pollinator. Honeybees are the pollinator that supports our current monocultural industry. Now, if you have a urban farm, for instance, and you're growing lots of different types of crops, um, you can have, actually have lots of different types of bees and different butterflies and beetles and flies and moths and lots of different pollinators to support your lots of different types of plants. Um, and that's actually a better way to do it because there are for example, if you're growing squash, there's a species called a squash bee that is specifically engineered to fit perfectly in that squash flower and get the pollen all over its body to transfer that pollen to the next flower and, and on and on. And it, it's very, very efficient at pollinating the squash plant. There's also blueberry bees specific for blueberry flowers. You and then uh, and then you have your early blooming flowers, maybe like dandelions, and then you have early emerging uh, bees like mason bees, and those kind of go hand in hand as well. So you have, early, you have early spring flowers and early spring bees. Honeybees are generalists, meaning they'll pretty much go for anything. They do prefer trees or kind of large fields of clover or large fields of one type of plant, um, but they'll pretty much go for anything. So I, I want to kind of say bees in general or pollinators in general are really important for our ecosystem. The, the flowers that you see growing on the side of the road, they're probably getting pollinated by native bees. Well, they're, they're probably getting pollinated by a mixture of native bees and honeybees. So bees in general, bees are important for our ecosystem. Honeybees are important for our agricultural system. That's the best way to kind of delineate that. So it sounds like bees in general, not just honeybees, but, but all sorts of bees, are very important to the ecosystem. Like we need bees for, for growth, right? And I guess I would ask you, have we seen or have you seen any population decrease in bees recently, lately, in the last 10 years? Um, I, I don't know anything about this. So I guess I'd ask you, how, what is the population like? Because it's obvious they're very important for our world. So a recent stat I've heard is something like 80% of our insect species are in decline. Now, this is really hard to, it's hard to estimate. It's hard to, um, 
to identify. It's hard to really get data on this sort of thing. Um, but most most of what we're seeing is population decline of insects, including pollinators like bees. Honeybees have unique problems to the way that we keep them and just the way that they exist. So for example, the number one killer of honeybees is the varroa mite, which acts like a tick and sucks on the fat bodies of the thorax of the honeybee. Um, and then this uh, tick essentially can hop from bee to bee and transfer diseases from bee to bee and weakens the colony overall. Um, and we have treatments out there for our varroa mites. Some beekeepers are, are kind of purists and do not like using any chemicals on their bees. Some beekeepers treat their bees every single year for varroa mites, whether they find them or not. Um, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. I treat when I see an issue, but I'm, I try not to over-treat, um, but I'm not a kind of naturalist either. But honeybees also suffer from poor beekeeping experience. So we have a lot of new beekeepers out in the field right now, and I want to support people to become beekeepers because I think it's great. It's a really fun hobby. You get honey out of it. You can get increased uh, yields in your gardens. Um, so keeping honeybees is, is great, but um, you need to know, you need to be able to identify diseases and um, either isolate those diseases, treat for those diseases or treat for those pests, whatever you're going to do, you need to have that knowledge base first. But other things that kind of plague Honeybees, one is, well, this is for every insect, pesticides. Pesticides are a huge issue. People are spraying for mosquitoes around their home, um, but the mosquito companies like to work a nine to five, right? But mosquitoes only come out in the evening. So they'll spray for mosquitoes in the middle of the day. Well, who's out in the middle of the day? Moths, butterflies, bees, honeybees. So you're, we're killing all of our beneficial insects. And then by the time the evening rolls around, the mosquitoes come out like, hey, guys, what? What happened? Why is everyone dead around here? Let me go suck some blood of you know and spread diseases. Yes. Um, so it's really the way that we currently are trying to manage mosquito populations is is an extreme failure. But not only that, you have um, herbicides can also impact honeybees and, and again bees in general. So pesticides are a big issue. Habitat loss is a big issue, and a lot of people when they think of habitat loss, they think of roads or parking lots or buildings, but our monocultures in our agricultural system, that's habitat loss too. That's you're, you're turning this field that could be full of lots of different flowers and growing only one type of flower in there. And that's only feeding our honeybees because we're trekking them all around to the different um, areas for, for pollination. So there's many things plaguing our insects in general. There's some things specific to honeybees. Um, but overall, we are seeing insect loss, and that lack of biodiversity is really going to become a problem um, as we march forward. We're not really, we're not really seeing the effects of it quite yet. But that's partially because we are propping up our honeybee population so much to support our agricultural system. Um, but it's normal for a for a beekeeper to lose thirty percent of his hives in a year. If you had a crop of corn and you lost 30% of your corn in a year, you'd go out of business. There's nothing supporting that. So the fact that we can support our honeybee populations that much, we can afford that kind of loss because there are no other options. The other option is to build little robots to pollinate for us. Or even in China, there are people hand pollinating. They're taking little Q-tips and they're going from flower to flower and hand pollinating because their, their, their pollinator species are just in such decline. 
I mean, we are we are on the brink of, of a really big issue because of our lack of biodiversity within our insect populations. Yeah, and it's an issue that, I mean, like you said, I mean, we might not be seeing the uh, the effects right now, but if it keeps happening, we definitely will. And it's an issue that a lot of people don't know about. So um, that's why I love love talking on all issues on the podcast, because, you know, it opens up people's minds to all different things. So I want to get into um, the company, um, Southeast Beescapes. And again, you know, from, from a little digging, I, I found that you worked with some restaurants in the past. Um, and one of those restaurants was Raised on the River. And the reason I bring Raised on the River up is because my uncle has worked at Raised on the River for 20 years, maybe more than 20 years. Um, And Raised on the River is a great place. I've I've eaten there countless times over my life. And when I read that in the past that that you had worked with them on on honeybees and setting up shop there, I was like, wow, this is is really interesting because I've been to Raised so many times. I've eaten so so much food from Raised. So yeah, I mean, I want to get into your your collaboration with restaurants um, such as Raised on the River in the past um, and really, you know, how these restaurants introduce I guess I'd say honey and, and different honey to their culinary creations. Sure. So, um, so with my business, I managed honeybees for other people, including restaurants, urban farms, um, places like that. When restaurants uh, come up to me, I think it's kind of difficult because most of them don't want to pay for a whole bunch of hives, but that's kind of what you need in order to create enough honey to support your year-round um, you know, creations and, and food meals. So um, with Rays on the River, I only kept bees uh, for them for a couple of years. And we had some established hives there and things were going pretty well. We got a good honey harvest one year, but then we had issues. Uh, and this was uh, during COVID. And so they had very limited seating. And then at some point, one of the years, they opened up their seating outside. Um, to, you know, to encourage social distancing and see, sitting outside to prevent the spread of disease. My poor honeybees, they, <laughs> they would get all into like the fruit salads and the fruity cocktails and the sweets and the desserts. Because <laughs> the bees were, I mean, uh, maybe 100 feet away from these, from these people sitting and trying to enjoy their meal. And after a couple of complaints, we're like, okay, this isn't going to work. And I found a farm that was willing to host those hives. So they were still raised on the river hives, but they were being hosted at another farm. Um, and then we had an ant infestation, um, which really took down my hive. So um, that's how it kind of ended there because I, I didn't really have a site for, for them. And I was trying to slow down my business anyways. So it was kind of a way for us to amicably say, you know, this isn't going to work. Because that's another thing is beekeeping doesn't work everywhere. You might have a site that you think is perfect for bees, but an experienced beekeeper could come out and say, oh, but you like having fruity cocktails in your back porch. Um, The bees are probably going to find that and get into that. So with the restaurants, I had a hard time really selling it um, as, you know, I think a lot of them liked the idea of beehives, but as far as actually creating enough honey to support your your business, it's it's pretty difficult. The average yield of a beehive is about forty pounds per year, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. Um, but if you're using honey in, let's say, one of your desserts year round, um, you could use up that honey pretty quickly, and then you're you know then you have to import other honey to use for your creations. And so it was. Um, I could see. I think if I spent more years and more time 
working with restaurants, I think it could have been successful. But I, at that point, I was just slowing down my business anyway. So it was just a good way to say goodbye. But I will say um, Rays on the River also had gardens on site. And so the bees were helping pollinate the, I think they had tomatoes and herbs and peppers. Um, so they also wanted the bees for their pollination on site as well as the honey on site. Yeah, it seems like a big selling point for restaurants going. I mean, we, we talk about farm to table, right? And mm-hmm. and that's literally like you're taking you're taking honey right outside. You're taking yeah. these vegetables right outside and bring them in. Um, that's that's a huge selling point. You know, you did Southeast Beescapes, I think, since 2016. And then, mm-hmm. you know, over time, you started to to kind of step away from it. You know, I, I want to get into, you know, what how did that come about? You know, you, you started this. You had, you had a huge passion for it from Copenhagen. You worked in, in, in honeybees all through college and, and volunteer work. You started this, you started this business, you got a couple of restaurants on board and then you started to, to, to kind of phase out of it. So I guess I don't want to say what happened, but you know, how did, how did that all come to be? Sure. So at my peak, I was managing about 50 hives around the Atlanta area. So I had residential clients, I had restaurants, urban farms, like I said, um, schools, um, and so I was managing hives for all these different people and, um, and the interest was just growing and growing. Um, and it got to the point where I was at my max personally of what I could take care of as far as driving around Atlanta, taking care of the bees, extracting the honey, you know, all that. And then I actually looked at into hiring some people to help, um, and grow the business. And I had one prospective employee and um, things fell through with that. Things actually fell through because I heard from another beekeeper that they were not a trustworthy person to work with and that 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 beekeeper had killed that other beekeeper's hives unintentionally, but it happened. And so it kind of made me step back and realize that um, I don't think I'm quite ready to relinquish that kind of control to another beekeeper to trust them to do, you know, to, to keep bees in the way that I like keeping bees because every beekeeper does it different. Every single beekeeper has their own way of doing things. So it kind of made me step back and go, well, what do I really want from this? Because if, if I can't grow it anymore, you know, and I wasn't really making enough money full time with my business to really support what I wanted to do with my life. And so it kind of made me step back and made me think about it a little bit more. Um, And at the same time, there was this kind of deeper realization of, or a deeper respect and understanding of the role of our native bees in our ecosystem and finding out that honeybees really aren't essential to our ecosystems. It's really about our native bees. So honeybees, while they are incredibly important for agricultural system, I didn't want to go into the agricultural world. My interest is in sustainability. My interest is in native habitats. My interest is in habitat restoration and managing land in a responsible way. And so in order to do that, you need to support your native bee populations, not your honeybee populations. I think the the shine of the honeybee kind of went away. I mean, honeybees are still so interesting for other reasons, but that kind of shine, that glimmer of honeybees and the the hope that I thought honeybees gave me it was really, it was native bees all along. That was, that was what I was interested in. I was interested in sustainability in a true sense. Honeybees, I don't want to say that they're not sustainable, but really we can use them. They're interesting to research. I think if we can find out what is killing our honeybees, we'll know what's killing our native bees. If we want to test certain chemicals or whatnot on honeybees, 
um, because honeybees are really easy to test and manage because we can put them in these boxes. We can't really do that with our native bee species. So it kind of made me lose interest for my own business because if I could go, I always, there are technically people who keep bumblebees for, um, what do they call greenhouses? So they can put bumblebee colonies inside greenhouses because bumblebees are really great pollinators. Bumblebees are actually better pollinators than honeybees are. And so they can, so I just want to be a bumblebee keeper. If I could do that, that would be so much fun. <laughs> so um, I haven't quite looked into that yet, but th these realizations made my business seem not as interesting to me. Um, and so, and I was already kind of slowing my business down. I was saying goodbye to certain clients and towards the end, I really just started giving my clients to another beekeeper. So there was another beekeeper that I trusted. And he was actually, I was looking for full-time employment in the sustainability field. He was retiring and looking for, looking to do beekeeping full-time. So we just kind of swapped places and I gave him most of my beekeeping clients and he's been doing great with that. So yeah, just my, my, my own company kind of lost its shine for me and, um, but I'm really happy with where I am right now. And I feel like, you know, like I said, I wasn't able to grow my business because I didn't want to hire people. I was anxious to do so. Um, and I felt like my impact was so limited because I could only manage 50 hives was my max. But really, I wanted to do so much more. Brooke, the last last segment I do on every podcast is advice and final questions. And this is a lot of these questions might be generic, but um, I asked similar questions to all guests because I want the listeners to understand that a lot of the guests have the same answers. Mm -hmm. And um, especially when I ask specific questions on sustainability. But the first question I'll ask you, this is more of a fun question that, you know, I, I honestly just wrote down while we were talking. I grew up with uh, a lot of allergies. Um, I, I would get allergy shots two times a week. When, when I was tested for allergies, I was allergic to everything they tested me for, every type of grass, every type of tree, pollen, everything outside, um, oh, which, no. which was bad because I grew up playing sports and I was always outside. Um, but, you know, I always heard that when you travel to a new place, what you need to do is go to a local supermarket and get local honey, eat local honey, and that will help your allergies. So is that, is that a myth or is that, or is that true? Uh, the science so far has not really supported that claim. So I always have to be honest with people. And even like, yeah. Back when I had my own beekeeping business and was selling honey, people go, oh, I want to buy this for my allergies. And I'd have to kind of bite my tongue like, mm, it's probably not going to help you with your allergies. So here's the thing. You're allergic to the pollen that is fl floating around you. Local raw honey has bits of that po of, of local pollen in it. And the idea is that you can eat a little bit of honey every day and build up an immunity to the pollen that you're also breathing. I think it makes sense, but scientifically it has not been proven. That's not to say that maybe we just haven't done the right study or a rigorous enough study, or we haven't isolated the variables or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so I'm not totally ruling it out, but I'm, you know, whatever gets people to eat maybe more honey instead of high fructose corn syrup, go for it. If that's what, you know, if, and some people, and okay, here's the better way to put it the placebo effect is still an effect. So if right. these people feel better eating a teaspoon of honey every day, go for it. Feel better, <laughs> please. Uh, so I I see nothing wrong with that. I wrote down two bullet points and one was placebo effect and the other <laughs> was, it's kind of acting like, I mean, how you're mentioning, you're getting bits of pollen in the honey 
So it's almost like a flu vaccine, right? When you take the flu vaccine, you're getting a a piece of that virus in you so your white blood cells can fight it off. It's very similar, and it makes a lot of sense. So that's uh, you have a lot of folk um, stories, you know, growing up, and that was always one of them. Um, so now we know the answer, which is, which yeah. is cool. <laughs> inconclusive. Um, the answer is inconclusive. inconclusive. <laughs> you know, well, maybe, maybe in the future we'll have a, a legitimate answer, but right now we just have to, to stick with it. You know, another question I wrote down was, and we already touched on this was, you know, you found your passions uh, studying abroad. So maybe all of us need to go to Copenhagen and that's where we will find, you know, our passion. <laughs> Um, I, I, in, in my opinion, I, I love to travel. I was just, I was just in Hawaii recently, actually, and in Oahu. So Honolulu's Island. And it's just so interesting to travel because you learn different cultures. Um, I I stayed in a hostel. So I was staying with people in Europe, um, Germany, Switzerland, trying to think where else we had some Australians, but it was was just very interesting. I love to travel and always tell people, you know, get, get out of your town and and expand, you know, because that's the only way you can grow. But, you know, the next question I'll ask is, you know, for the Atlanta listeners, you know, the first segment of this podcast, the first half, we talked all about beekeeping. So if they're like, wow, um, I never knew about bees like this. I want to get involved. You know, where can they volunteer to um, to beekeep in Atlanta? So the best resource there is going to be the Metro Atlanta Beekeepers Association. And they have monthly in-person meetings uh, in the Buckhead neighborhood in a church. And, um, every, every meeting they have a speaker come and speak about a topic about beekeeping. So you can learn a lot, but you can also socialize with other beekeepers and ask them questions. And actually before 30 minutes before the monthly meeting, they have a mentorship time where you can come with any questions that you have. And they do like a little mini demo of something. Um, so that's going to be my number one recommended resource for new beekeepers. The Metro Atlanta Beekeepers Association also has public hive inspections. If you're not, if you are a member of MABA, they're free. If not, I think it's like $15, but you you can do a public hive inspection and um, you have to bring your own suit, but you can actually go kind of shadow a beekeeper as they work through their hives. Mm. And that is another great way to learn. You know, what is your advice to the listeners who, again, that they've heard you talk and and heard your background in computer science and how you transition into this career in sustainability? Mm-hmm. You know, what is your advice to those listeners who might have that same mindset and are thinking, wow, I, I really want to do work that's beneficial to the world yeah. um, and that's really going to make a difference? Your advice to those people who might want to start a career in sustainability? I would say volunteer with as many sustainability organizations you can get your hands on. Um, because it's gonna it's gonna open your eyes to what you might like about working in sustainability and what you don't like so much about working in sustainability. It'll also build your resume. So if you're going to apply to jobs within the sustainability realm, um, it'll give you that good experience and also help you make connections with um, with others. And so you could ask someone like me, like what are what are the pitfalls? What are the successes? What are you celebrating right now? What are you struggling with right now? I think it's important to have those sorts of um, discussions. And, um, and I think the best advice is to be open-minded to try new experiences, go travel. I think traveling is a great way to, I completely agree with that is a great way to open your mind. But yeah, I think volunteering and just, just getting involved, getting your feet wet and really getting a sense for what the reality of working in sustainability is like. For me, volunteering, that's honestly what led me to a job in sustainability so right right on track with what you're saying is is what i've experienced in my own life 
In part two of this series, we delve deep into the Candida building at Georgia Tech. A true architectural gem, this structure stands as a beacon of innovation and sustainability. Notably, it shines as one of the few living buildings in the United States, embodying the essence of regeneration. Imagine a building that goes beyond convention, one that generates more energy than it consumes and brilliantly recycles bathroom sink water to nourish vibrant outdoor gardens. This is the domain we're about to explore, where design meets conscious living. Plus, stay tuned for an exclusive look into the life and vision of Brooke, the senior facilities manager who weaves passion into every sustainable thread of the building story.